What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. You're listening to the Laugh Button Podcast on the Riotcast Network. Riotcast.com. So welcome back to another episode of the Laugh Button Podcast. I am the editor-in-chief of the Laugh Button and your host of the Laugh Button Podcast. I'm pulling double duty, guys. Pulling oh, good double for duty. you. <laughs> good for you. Nick, how many times are you going to be in this podcast before you got to learn to eat the goddamn microphone? You, you know didn't what? even say your name. You're Matt Kleinschmidt. <laughs> you just said I'm the host. I've been on the podcast <laughs> enough now that even Walmart's generous return policy <laughs> just, would not let you I send me back. I don't, I don't fucking know. Anyway, <laughs> I am Matt Kleinschmidt, the editor-in-chief of the LaughButton.com and the host of the Laugh Button Podcast. Does that work for you, Bram? Good job. You son of a bitch. Hey, the people uh, want to know who you are. <laughs> they do. Uh, I'm once again joined by Bram Tideman, editor-in-chief of MetalInsider.net, and Nick DeSimone, uh, met from MetalInsider.net, Metal Albums with the Googly Eyes, Uber of Hoboken, uh, hey. the band, I forget, and uh, Kermit nice. the Frog, fronting Limp Bizkit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're just, your title just gets longer and longer as this, <laughs> as this podcast progresses, so I, I don't know. So yeah, uh, check us out on uh, anywhere you can download podcasts from Apple Podcasts, and on Ridecast.com, the Ridecast Network on Ridecast.com. It's a hot um, one this week. It is a hot one this week. Like we seven got... inches from the midday, so God damn it. God damn it. <laughs> no. Like, sit in the, fucking sit in the corner for what you've done Sir, uh, no, we got a. It is a, it is actually a hot one. We got Chris Gethard on the podcast this week. I actually had a great conversation with Chris Gethard. We talked about basically his new HBO special. I don't even want to call it a stand up special because it's not a stand up special. It's more like a one man show. It's about an hour and a half one man show. It's really cool. It's called Career Suicide. It's about his history with mental illness and depression. He battled it his entire life. Uh, he was had about a bout with alcoholism, and he basically talks about you know how kind of it all was intertwined and worked. And uh, Judd Apatow was the executive producer of the special. It's on HBO. It's basically the biggest thing Chris Gethard's ever done. And uh, as he mentions, he, he's he has a concern that uh, possibly the biggest thing he's ever done in his life on a, a platform that's known for comedy, a la HBO, that he basically is talking about depression. So it's a very great conversation. He's a New Jersey guy. I'm a New Jersey guy. He also went to Rutgers, as, a, as did I. So there's a lot of... Uh, I related a lot when I watched the special because of a lot of different uh, touch points that outside of just the, the clinical depression that he uh, suffers from. Yeah, I mean, uh, the only time I'm really depressed is uh, every week when I tape this podcast with you. <sighs> See, it's just... It's not like, clinical. It's, it's just like just, a it's seasonal... Just, uh, it's just seasonal. You have seasonal affective disorder to the sads. <laughs> I have the sads every time. I do. And SARS as well. Well, actually, is it, is it podcast affectional disorder? So wouldn't it be the pads? 
Hey, yeah. look what I'm I did there, guys. Pads. You're suffering from the pads, guys. This is giving me crib death. <laughs> All right. So what's going on in the comedy news this week? Some big stories, guys. I don't know if uh, you guys uh, got a chance to check out the 13-minute monologue from Jimmy Kimmel earlier this week. Uh, yeah, it was less funny and more like uh, an actual real movement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jimmy Kimmel's never not... I mean, I don't want to say has never not cried. Jimmy Kimmel has had a, had a crying monologue or two. The most recent one before this was the death of Don Rickles, but this was about his newborn son who had a heart disease and had to basically get an operation uh, to save his life, and it kind of... It spawned a, obviously, a conversation about like how grateful he was for family and for the doctors at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, but it also kind of like became this underhanded conversation slash movement about the Affordable Care Act and healthcare uh, being a, being available for uh, people with pre-existing conditions too. So yeah, I mean they're saying that it might actually um, result in the uh, affordable healthcare thing. Not even affordable, whatever they're calling it. The H H. It was the ACHA was the the new one that the Trump administration has tried to pull. ACA was the Obama administration. Yeah, AKA there's, there's, there's already been a Republican guy that's like, I'm not going to back this, and uh, people are saying that it might be because of all these people talking about his monologue that you know. Well, so. I mean, I mean, late night can can kind of uh, push for change if the if if it's one of those things where it really hits home. Jimmy Kimmel has a clear audience. His audience is isn't just Democrats and liberals. It's 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 middle America. It's all over the place. And saying something that really relates to you is um, is probably the best way to kind of help a movement out. I know... It normalized it. Well, that, well that's a thing, too. It totally Normal, normalized I mean, it. but that's a good way of putting it, though, too. Normalizing is, you know, it's, it's kind of how all this stuff happens. It's how, it's how race relations ease in certain areas. It's how everyone... Uh, I remember back in the 90s when the real world was just starting and there's Pedro Zamora who had died from AIDS. At some point after his death, President Clinton at the time, Bill Clinton, said... Now everybody in America knows somebody who died from AIDS, and it kind of was like, oh, okay, well, this is this is maybe this kind of takes a lot of that that element of politics or that element of that's not happening in my backyard because you're like, oh yeah, you know, everyone does now know someone who has suffered from and died of AIDS. It's why I think uh, LGBT rights have progressed so fast in the last decade. Obviously, there's way more progress that needs to happen, but everyone knows somebody who's living as an out gay, transgender, or queer person, and it's like, oh, cool. Like, yeah, it's no longer just like some dude you've heard a story of somewhere. It's my uncle, my friend, my this, my that, my other thing. And it does normalize things. And I think that definitely helps um, people. And I also think that the American people have been very vocal about, like, the Affordable Care Act doing good things for them. Is it broken? Is it flawed? There are problems with it. But it's like, fix it. You know, don't just necessarily throw the whole fucking baby out with the bathwater scenario, I think is what we're talking about here. The baby that needed open heart surgery in the bathwater. In the bathwater. <laughs> not as uh, not as catchy or short as something else. But no. So yeah. So Kimmel's getting a lot of praise for this monologue, which I think is a really good thing. And then the other side of the coin is Colbert is catching some heat for basically a joke he made about Trump. That the joke. I don't know if you guys have heard the joke. Have you heard the joke? I have. I have. I don't know Actually, if you've heard it. Basically, basically Colbert was going on a jag about Trump, and he basically said the only th- him ranting his mouth off about something or Twitter, and basically Colbert said. Uh, and I might be paraphrasing. He said, the only thing your mouth is good for is 
is holding Vladimir Putin's cock. Like, it's like oh, as, yeah, as, yeah, as no, a cock hole. Yeah, yeah. yeah. co- yeah. Vladimir Putin's uh, cock hole. Uh, yeah, some, some, something like which, that. Which was bleeped and all that kind of stuff. But now there's a whole cancel Colbert. He's gone too far. He's taken shots at the president. All this kind of other stuff. So it's it spawned this whole other controversy, which Colbert has not addressed publicly. It's only been a couple of days. But I think, the be- first of all, the best thing for Colbert to do is just shut the fuck up and let the next thing happen in a couple of days or t- two. Because something will. I actually um, was laughing a lot more at him saying that Trump was a uh, sign language gorilla that got hit on the head. <laughs> it, it was. I mean, that's I, funnier to me. I mean, like, but it also this is the job of late night. It's the, uh, this is the job of these guys. Uh, the comedians are the court jesters, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of social justice warrior confrontation and conflicts happening on like your twitters of the world, and. They're saying it's homophobic, it's anti-LGBT. And I, I don't think that there should... And, and, and I, I feel like this is immediately the point where it's like, are you, you, know, are you saying the right thing here? But yeah. there should... I don't think that there, should, there should be limits in comedy. No, there shouldn't be limits in comedy, and, and that's and the whole point of uh, of comedy being able to say whatever the hell you want is you find the line by, go, by crossing the line. That's how it works. Right. What I, what I think, though, is like... You can't just say someone's racist and then they're racist. That's just not how it works. But I feel like in the age of Twitter and social media, it's very easy to classify someone as you're anti-gay, and then all of a sudden it's like that's that's the gospel. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. And I think it's one of those things that happens with social justice warriors. I also think people in dub- people doubling down on this type of rhetoric is exactly why someone like Donald Trump won an election Mm -hmm. because there are people out there that are literally tired of being... You can't say that. You can't do this. You can't do that. And eventually, the movement kind of cannibalizes itself, it is. where it comes back around and people are attacking each other it, it, instead. That, and of that's and that's what I'm getting at. And that's what I'm getting at is like strange. Is is like uh, you know it's it like Bill Maher said you know uh, you know basically Democrats while they're they're sitting here trying to figure out you know who screwed them they're getting fucked in the ass or some 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 line like that. But it's absolutely true. It's Colbert is you know Colbert's stance on. Uh, politics. He's done nothing but praise social rights, LGBT rights, all this kind of stuff. And to say one thing like that and call it uh, homophobic or whatever like that, it's like you're shooting your own self in the foot. So it's like you're arguing, it's like the Republicans have taken over this stuff for a lot of this and the Democrats are still trying to fight, figure out the, the, the conversation. You know what I mean? So I don't think it's helping anyone or any cause because Colbert's done nothing for the last six months talk shit about the president. This isn't the one. Yeah. You know, I can only it's wonder like, how many of the people that are really complaining about it actually saw it live. Well, it's not even that. It's just we live in a time now where someone says the word black and it's a buzzword trigger word. It's like, well, what's the context behind them saying that word? And almost like you can't say these certain buzzwords and, well, it's like context is gone. You know, I, I literally had a conversation in a meeting with someone once where I used the phrase historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, which is a term that colleges in the country call themselves that are historically black colleges and universities. Of course. And I used it and someone's like, you can't say that. I was like, what do you mean we can't say it? Like, that's actually what 
the, the what they are. Like that's that's the that, that's the phrase and and the terminology that these universities determine to call themselves. That's their organization. Was because it a white person who said that? That's the other thing too. It was. So oh, it's like well, so you know what it is too, and it's it's so it's like someone got offended for someone else, and it's, and I was like, wait a second, that's not what this means here. Like you're just you hear the buzzword of me calling something black and referring to skin tone, and all of a sudden it's a racist comment. I don't think that's what right. Was that the case outrage yeah. kind of culture thing is yeah, like yeah, yeah. this this, this culture, point yeah. of where uh, immediately like my my immediate like visceral kind of gut reaction to something is more important than the context or anything else but it's yeah. like it's like oh, I don't give a shit if you're right and I'm wrong yeah, yeah. I'm mad about it yeah, yeah, yeah. fuck it's, you yeah. I'm angry yeah. and that's more important than than context or facts or anything well, else I think that's, it's, that's, it's like, well, that's you know what, that, that, that's what comedy fights all fucking day though it fights. I would have given that person a historically black eye you. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what context is I mean that's all comedy is is context and sometimes it ages well and sometimes it's right on point like there was a every six months or so there's a joke that comes up that someone makes about rape okay and usually family guy <laughs> <laughs> no no I mean the comedian like some joke will be made and someone will find the joke offensive for whatever their reason is and there and it becomes this debate in the comedy community about like can you joke about rape can you do this that and the other thing and the reality situation is like listen there's some comedians that handle subject matter very very well like that like Louis CK can tell a great rape joke you know why because he's Louis C fuck he's Louis fucking CK you know who probably can't tell a great rape joke an open micer because you know what they don't have that they don't have it yet, you know. So I, it's just this. It's constantly this. This I hear these buzzwords. Therefore, I, I I hear a buzzword. I'm supposed to be offended by the buzzword. Context is out the window, and all of a sudden you're like, "Geez, what the hell happened?" And I think that's an argument that comedians are constantly having. Uh, Sam Morrill is a great example where he told this great joke, which was a kind of a play. It was going to be a play on. It was a play on race. It was a play on rape. It was it was perfect. And he did this little twist where you're like, "Oh shit, that's so funny!" And that joke spawned this entire thing this entire conversation about like you know rape jokes and Daniel Hosh and like you know the battle with like Lindy West and Jim Norton all that kind of stuff it was just kind of unbelievable to see it all happen it's just I feel like context is out of the window and I know there's a lot of comedians out there that are just like you can't say a damn thing within with context anymore and it's like well how do you the only way you find the funny in this stuff is you talk about it on stage in a spot in an area where like well it can be okay because that's where what a comedy club is these people aren't politicians politicians be mad when a politician says that because a politician can actually dictate change and actually like make a law where a comedian's job is just to make you fucking laugh it's an, it's unbelievable so i don't know you don't have to feel dirty for laughing at stuff that's off color you know what i mean that's that's ultimately that's what kind of like part of it almost yeah. is like I've got a revolting fucking sense of humor, <laughs> but I'm not actually a scumbag. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not saying, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying bad jokes aren't bad. What I'm saying is like the whole job of a comedian, and I will be, I, I am comedian first. I will defend comedians to the death, and you, nine times, and I know you know they're joking because you know what they're a comedian. You're in a comedy club. That's where these jokes happen. Uh, but sometimes it's 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 really interesting just to kind of see just like where that line is and how it works. And I, and I understand times change. I mean, like you know Eddie Murphy. One of his early records, the like the first or second has not aged well. Has not aged well at all. I mean, like the first or second 
track on that is called like faggots and it's all about a guy looking at his butt and it's just like ooh that was 30 years ago mm-hmm. and you're just like wow that just would not fly in 2017 and as rightfully it shouldn't you know the whole the whole premise of it is very homophobic uh, but, it, but, that, uh, but the whole context of it's homophobic it's not just like one word or one sentence it just kind of sends off the whole thing I mean I don't know if you saw the uh, Wrong Stone Chris Rock interview but he's saying even that you know black people versus n-words thing wouldn't fly these days yeah, and I, I mean that's an iconic Chris Rock. Yeah, bit. and that 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 is a bit that I that many people that I know are like that was like the moment where I was like oh, but I also think that that is a that is a joke that I could absolutely see a far right leaning guy picking up the mantle and running with that in a way Chris Rock never intended, you know, and running with a uh, hey, you know, I think black people are fine, but the N word is like where the, the problem really is, and I and obviously once you create art and put art in the, out into the world, it can be interpreted a b- bajillion different ways. That's the whole point of art. Um, but yeah, I don't think that would fly in 2017. I don't think Chris Rock would be able to work on that bit in comedy clubs enough to get to a point where it's refined enough that it could be something he would tape for a special. And I think that's what a lot of these comedians are saying. And, you know, when Jerry Seinfeld says he doesn't do colleges anymore because, you know, there's uh, there's that no safe. There's no there's no. Where is he going to find his next girlfriend? <laughs> oh, 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 but uh, but I mean, like, I don't know. It just to me, it's kind of take it takes something out of comedy where like, you know, because there's that fine line. And I thought I was reminded of it many, many times when I was doing this interview with Chris Gether today was there's this really fine line between. Uh, where the funny is and where it just kind of all falls apart, you know, and you got to be able to find that as a comedian and you're not going to necessarily find it your first time out. It's really, uh, you need to really allow comedians for that opportunity to do stuff. So it's very, very interesting to see how it all plays out. But, you know, two late night hosts basically doing two different monologues. Basically, I think it was the same night too. It might have been Monday night for both of these or maybe, no, it was Monday night and uh, two completely different results. So, I don't know, man. But, uh, yeah, so, as far as other comedy news, so the High Plains Comedy Festival, they've announced people like T.J. Miller, who's a Denver guy, of course. My favorite murder. Gosh, that podcast is everywhere. Are you guys familiar wow. with this podcast at all? Yeah. Karen Kilgariff and uh, her partner. I forget her, her partner's name in the show, but they basically talk about like serial killer's favorite stuff. And this thing is like selling out theaters all over the place. So it's it's unbelievable that's going on there. But yeah, so those are the, like the two some of the two big people that they've announced with those two guys, which is kind of crazy. So It's the fifth year? It is the fifth year, yeah, happening. So. Are you going to get them a nice anniversary gift? <laughs> I think Wood is the fifth year. Is Wood the fifth year anniversary? I believe so, yeah. Oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. We'll have to do that. <laughs> I don't know. Subscribing so, right now. Is Wood podcast. really the five years? I don't even Sounds know. Sounds good. Yeah, my fa- you'll, you'll actually really dig my favorite murder, Nick. Yeah, definitely. So other things happened this week, too. Like Sam B did the, the, the not the White House correspondence dinner as Hassan Minaj was doing that. What do we feel about all this kind of stuff? I feel like... It was great that Sam B had this, but she had the same time as the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and then Trump was doing like a rally somewhere at the same time. So it's just like, oh, I don't feel like any of this got any sort of like huge legs because it was all over the place. Do you guys feel the same way? Um, I don't know. It was kind of like Samantha B's first big thing, first like hour long special. Um, yeah, that's and true. I wouldn't I call think it she special, probably, though. Well, I think she probably pretty much assumed that there wouldn't be a White House correspondence dinner after Trump and other people pulled out. So, yeah, 
but I, but again, I, the White House, the White House Correspondents' Dinner doesn't live or die by whether the president shows up. It never has. It's just the president has shown up as tradition has started the dictator over the years. I think the last time a president hasn't shown up was like when Ronald Reagan was shot. By the way, was, well. Ronald Reagan was also shot sixty nine days into his presidency. Oh, to, oh, I guess it was a, maybe it was his second was term. Sixty nine days, from what I understand. So I was like, oh, I didn't realize it was that soon into his presidency. But like, unless I'm wrong in reading that, because I read it somewhere, sixty nine days. I was like, oh wow, it's super close. So hmm. who knows? Who knows? Let's stop talking about politics. I feel like we talked about politics, the death and how this, all this. But like, want to give a huge shout out to Jim Gaffigan and his wife Jeannie. Uh, I don't know if you guys heard this, but uh, Jim basically went to was canceling some dates over the last couple weeks, and he went to social media to kind of explain what was going on, and basically. Basically, uh, his wife, Jeannie, who is his writing partner, his partner in life, obviously, the mother of all of his children. Yep. And uh, she's also helped co-produce and help him even write a lot of his latest specials and also co-wrote his uh, TV special with him. Um, she basically actually, she had brain surgery. They found a tumor and they recently had to remove it. And he basically went, he basically said like earlier this week that she got an MRI and she had a large tumor around her brain stab and it was life-threatening. So they basically went in through nine hours of surgery and the tumor was completely removed and she's now recovering so it's like whoa could you imagine like there's people that walk through lives with, with tumors and they just don't know it that's like blows my mind how that all that stuff happens but like yeah it's unbelievable I mean nine hours of surgery you go in there for wow. an MRI next thing they're like we gotta cut this fucking thing out hmm. so, who do you think they voted for <laughs> What? I'm just bringing it back to politics. Please stop bringing it back to politics. So, yeah, so, so, best wishes to Jeannie Gaffigan and Jim Gaffigan on uh, for the speedy recovery of that surgery. It's crazy. Uh, also, just dropped this week the new trailer for Defenders. No, I'm joking. But actually, that trailer did drop. I don't know if you guys saw the Defenders trailer yet no. with uh, Luke Cage and Iron Fist and all those dudes. That dropped today at or oh, yesterday as the Dark Tower. Pretty cool. Yeah, so that. that I saw. <laughs> That's cool. It is pretty cool. But the trailer I'm talking about is the uh, the the movie that Kumail Nanjiani did with his wife uh, Emily Gordon. It's called The Big Sick. Uh, it's loosely based on his relationship with his wife, dating her, uh, how they got met, how they got married, all that kind of stuff. Because uh, obviously he originally had a an arranged marriage because he's Pakistani, and that's what his uh, his heritage dictates. And you know, she being a white girl, uh, you know, obviously it was what like Kumail's mom and dad wanted uh, for him to kind of marry into. So it's loosely based on that. And funny enough. Judd Apatow is executive producing that, and Judd Apatow executive produces Chris Gethard's HBO special, uh, Career Suicide, and he also produced Pete Holmes' HBO show, Crashing. Crashing. And we talk about that in our interview with Chris Gethard, because they all met for the first time on a podcast taped live at South by Southwest that Pete Holmes was hosting, and from that meeting, these three... uh, projects have spawned so Chris basically called it in our interview and we'll get there eventually he, he called it one of the most successful podcasts of all time <laughs> um, but yeah I mean let's uh, let's just take this point to end here and we'll run it into uh, we'll pitch it to Nick for the Limp Biscuit Kermit the Frog Minute no I'm just joking <laughs> I mean hey yeah, <laughs> okay what do you got you got something <laughs> yeah <laughs> put him on the spot I do yeah no no I can't <laughs> Yeah, this time I'm going to let it all hang out. This time I'm going to stand up and shout. I'm going to do things my way. It's my way. My way or the highway. Never gets old, man. There you go. No, there it, it is. It never gets old. No, it's much fun. 
<laughs> Lasted much longer than, than Limp Biscuit's career even. Yeah, yeah, it did. Okay, so we'll take that opportunity. Sorry, Fred. <laughs> we'll take that opportunity to have Kermit the Frog front Limp Biscuit, and we'll, uh, we'll put this uh, interview over to Chris Gethard here on the Laugh Button Podcast. All right, well, well, Chris, thanks for coming on to the podcast. It's my pleasure. It's super awesome to have you here. I think the last time I saw you was you were moderating a panel for the Impractical Jokers at New York City Comic Con. Oh, that was crazy. Yeah. That was nuts. Yeah, I remember, like, it was like the Beatles came to town. <laughs> it really was. I, was. never forget when they came out, this woman in the front row had a baby, like a really young baby, and was holding the baby up and, like, shaking it at the Jokers. <laughs> Like, like, take my baby. Like the Pope. Like they wanted, like the Pope to bless the baby. But I remember I, I had to kind of like stop and say, like, hey, lady, like, don't shake a baby. Like I, I felt honor bound to kind of call it out. But those guys have. I mean, they have built something in yeah. a grassroots way that is very special. And I really, I, I admire. It. I've, I've actually been buddies with Sal for many years. Sal mm. was one of the earliest supporters of my public access show. Oh, really? He used to come on in our earliest episodes. If you ever watch them back, there's a guy sometimes dressed as a robot and that's Sal Volcano <laughs> no way. way before Jokers was a show oh, way before incredible. anything started moving with me when it was just public access and uh, we laugh now about how we both have <laughs> these shows but yeah he's he's a really good guy and it's, it's so impressive too because I feel like they did it off the Hollywood grid by and large you know? I think so too like it's very blue collar found its fans in a really grassroots way and that's awesome yeah well that's kind of your thing too is like I want to do public access I'm yeah do these left of center ideas yes I built my cult <laughs> slowly but surely over many many years by kind of doing things uh, in an oddball way but then what happens is you start to find the other oddballs mm -hmm. and, and you know I think especially right now there's a lot of young people who maybe feel a little left of center as you say mm -hmm. and I think they maybe came to look at me as championing <laughs> their voices a little bit and it's a nice thing and they're very passionate and flattering and sometimes I get in fights <laughs> with my own fan base on the internet but it's uh it's the way the internet works though too yeah. sometimes so. I mean, there's a group called Gethheads Really? I didn't know this. Yeah, and I, I was I spent like a week fighting with them because they wouldn't stop making fun of me. And I was like, I'm not even going to post here anymore if you don't stop. <laughs> Cut it out. I have low self-esteem. No, I'm doing a special on HBO about my anxiety and yeah. depression issues. I don't need my own fan base bullying me. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that because actually that's why we're here we're in celebration mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of, sure. of uh, your HBO uh, special, Career Suicide, which it definitely has more of a one-man show vibe to it, way more than a stand-up special. Yes, yes, yes. You know, which I, I'm assuming that's what you're going for. Well, it, it's, it's funny. I actually, you know, because I started out as an improviser mm -hmm. and then probably about 10 years ago started focusing more and more on stand-up haven't really done improv in like 12 years <laughs> okay. or five years um 2012 but everybody knows there's a little bit of divisiveness between the stand-up and improv world and i think yeah. i always i always get labeled as an improv guy no matter how much stand-up i do and I, there's an insecurity there mm -hmm. so i was like this has to be stand-up it has to hit as hard as my stand-up it has to have punchlines. Mm -hmm. and judd apatow when he got involved he actually stepped in pretty quickly and was like let's get that out of your head right now because <laughs> oh, wow. it's not stand-up like yeah, yeah. stand-up is in the dna of this thing but this is its own show mm -hmm. based on the types of things you're talking about there's going to be stretches that are sad and not funny and you don't want them to be funny so let let it be a show. Let it be a show that's like built on a foundation of stand-up, but let's not apologize for it. Let's not feel self-conscious about it. And that was, I think, a very accurate pep talk that I needed yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, like the first thing, one of the first things I noticed when I saw it was, wow, this is like kind of what Mike Birbiglia is doing. Like yeah. that kind of like stand-up, but it's a story. There's a theme. There's a thread that yeah. kind of the entire thing. And, and I actually spent a year opening for Birbiglia in 2014. Okay. I, uh, you know, I'd been around a while, but I did Bonnaroo and he saw me tell a story there and he's like, 
like, dude, you've gotten a lot better. Mm. And I just jumped on the opportunity. I was like, dude, if you ever need anyone to open for you, say the word. Because I knew I'd learn a lot, especially yeah. about how to be on the road, how to handle venues of, of a size that I wasn't playing. I was like, I'll just learn a lot. And I'm humble enough. You know, I'd been around like 14 years doing some form of comedy in New York then, but I was like, I'm just humble enough to know I'm going to learn a lot. And it's funny you say that because he was actually the one who challenged me to write the show. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, when we were on the road. You know, you're like playing the Midwest. Of course. And I love the Midwest, love the audiences, but nobody's going to claim that the drive from Iowa City to Wichita is a pretty exciting drive. Yes, like yes. everybody knows that. So what do you wind up doing? You wind up, you know, just talking mm -hmm. and you wind up telling each other stories and you wind up knowing a lot about each other. And Mike asked me, he was like, I've heard you joke about your depression. I've heard it come up on stage and your public access show, but what's like the realistic guy? Yeah. And I told him the car crash story that's now in the show. And I finished and he was like, that's hilarious. Tell it on stage. And I was like, no way. You're <laughs> out of your mind. And he, he, he kept saying, he was like, you know, you just, ha it's so honest your experience. And if you can get it out there in that honest way, I'm telling you, people are going to respond to it. And started doing the material on stand-up nights around town, mostly like Brooklyn shows where I know I have a lot of leeway. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Where, a little more space. And yeah, and some of the rooms tend to be a little artsier, and then I also tend to be a little more well-known there. You know, can't really go up at like stand-up New York where yeah. everybody's like a German tourist who <laughs> maybe got a little tricked into being there and didn't know they were going to spend Some Barker 80... in Times yeah, Square they saying Tina Fey's performance. Exactly. Yeah. They thought they were going to see Tina Fey. Meanwhile, they're <laughs> seeing this guy where they're like, maybe I saw him somewhere and, you know, can't really bust it out there. So, But I was doing that and people started responding to it right away and uh, in a way that was unlike anything else I'd ever done. You know, mm. even even for me having my cult that's very passionate, people would come up to me and say like, you know, I'm I've had depression my whole life and that really speaks to me. Thank you for doing it. Or even the ones that even actually were more important to me were people coming up to me saying, I dated a guy who was depressed and it ended so poorly, but I think I'm going to call him and tell him I kind of get it a little more. Mm. Or one couple that actually emailed me after they saw the show and said, like, our doctor has said our son needs medication. We always push back because he's young, but we're at least going to, like, remember that's a doctor with good intentions. Yeah. And things like that would happen. And it was a very hard show to do. And, and like you said, it became more of a one-man show. I was a little insecure about that, but I just had to remind myself like if that if it's getting those reactions just would kind of be a dick move to not go yeah, for yeah, it yeah. you know like if, if you have a chance to do something that people are saying helps them can't walk away from that because i'm insecure you know yeah. how are other comedians gonna view this judge this gotta just go all in and make it happen because if there's blowback or you know I've heard, heard a friend of mine overheard some comics saying I was like crafting an image as a depressed guy. And like, <laughs> if that blowback happens, it happens. But at the end of the day, if it helps even a handful of people, it's worth all that blowback. Yeah, I also think real recognizes real. And Hopefully. If you're, and if you're telling a real story and real things and real events about yourself, it, it recognizes it. I mean, I don't have a history with depression, but I vibe so well with watching your special. And I'll tell you why. I'm from Jersey. Big, went, where are you from? I'm from South Jersey, Glassboro. Okay. Okay. I went to Rutgers. So when you're talking about New the, Brunswick or Camden? New Brunswick. Okay. So when you're talking okay. about running drunk down Eastern Avenue, oh, yeah. I, I've I've oh, had those yeah. moments. Yeah. I'm married to a Jersey girl named Carmela. There you go. Does she have the accent? <laughs> she does not have the accent. Okay. And I work in Weehawken, New Jersey. So I'm like, oh my god, all these touch points on this special. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, it's so actually really cool to hear. And yeah. and that was, I was really intentional about always wanted to be specific with locations. Mm -hmm. I wasn't just driving. I was driving on Valley Road in Clifton, New Jersey. Yeah, I was yeah. in Weehawken. I was mm -hmm. on Eastern Avenue because I wanted. You know, it's 
comedian, there is that sad clown stereotype. Yeah. And there also is that feeling of like, uh, you know, like it's a one man show about mental health stuff and this and that. And there's also that feeling that in Manhattan, it's it's easier to talk about than any place else in the world. It might be a hard conversation, yeah. easiest here. So I wanted to always hammer home. I'm from a place where this conversation was not easy. Yeah, yeah, I when get that. Hanging out in Clifton, and when you're hanging out at Rutgers, I don't know how old you. Are. I'm 36. I'm 37. So we're yeah, so we age. must we were there at the same time. We That's probably crazy. were there at the That's same crazy. time. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah, class of 02. I, I was class of 02, but I did a I did four and a half years, not five years. So nice. I walked in 02. Oh yeah, we probably yeah, we absolutely crossed probably, paths yeah, back yeah. then. Tuesday nights at the Melody Bar, 80s dance night. Oh, year. there yeah. you go. Ale and Witch. Ale yeah. and Witch was more <laughs> my spot. Okay. Melody Bar, they knocked down while we were there. And they did. They did. Close it, and it was like it was like the end of an era. And the me. house shows kind of stopped, and uh, people, they, they picked up again. Like, actually, a I have, years back, I know, a couple years back. So, yeah, yeah, and people always say to me, like, because I, I do have a, a punk background. Mm -hmm. I actually do a lot of comedy shows. You have at, a record on Don Giovanni. Yeah, Cruz. yeah, and uh, people have said, like, oh, that must have been such a great place for you to be back then. And it's like, no, that fell apart, and it was actually yeah, yeah. a very lonely, miserable place, and life was hard for me. <laughs> and you remember from back then. I hope it's gotten better now. Rutgers University, around that era, nobody really wanted to hear about how sad I was. No, so it's no. state school in yeah. a blue-collar state. Mm -hmm. Very much prides so. itself on being a tough state yeah, and a tough so. place. Yeah, very much so. Nobody wanted to hear that I was sad. <laughs> I felt like. Well, I mean, like, I also, it took me a while to, uh, you know, having the same kind of, those experiences, like, where do I belong, which, is yeah. sounds like, which was a lot what you were experience with like I joined the local radio station I joined the radio station yeah. on campus and like I've kind of found like my, my campus of RSU freaks. I actually wasn't RSU I was RLC over on Livingston okay. I, ran, I ran that one over there with my buddy Rob and not Rob Bertrand yeah that's what I'm talking about w went to high school with him one of my good <laughs> friends from high school I knew he ran that radio this, station. Yeah, so so Rob was the general manager before I. Yeah, I remember. That's manager. how I knew. I remember he was, <laughs> and funny. and he was, I think, two years older than me. But I was super tight with his sister Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she's married and has like three kids in Philly, three. right? Yeah, she lives in Philly with her husband. This Small is, world. <laughs> this is a weird conversation, but I figured we, we'd go this. I feel like you know the artsy and the alternative kids kind of yeah. find each other, mm -hmm. especially in Rutgers with the basement shows and all that kind of stuff. So hearing about these these conversations, I was like, wow, I didn't I I didn't know anybody who. Had had mental illness yeah. in school but obviously those people existed and you, you know you're proof that it, it happened and I didn't really kind of empathize with those people until I met my wife who was a drug and alcohol counselor and yeah. she was like you know no this happens a lot and like you know and and, and me and kind of turned me on to okay well everyone's kind of got their own struggle yeah and what I like about this special is it's it's your struggle it's it's a documentation of what you've done and where you've been through and it seems like you've kind of come to a resolution even though you continue daily day with the struggle yeah, and I think a lot of that is just about I'm not going to hide it anymore. Yeah, you shouldn't, and there's no need yeah, to. Yeah, but it's a lot of people still do, and yeah. it's hard to talk about. It's still a pretty hard conversation to have, especially for young people when you're going to be mm -hmm. told it's a phase cheer up what do you have to complain about there's other people who have it so much worse and all those things get said and i bet for a lot of, you know a lot of kids who are teenagers early 20s all those things are true but then for some people it's like no there's actually something wrong and it's yeah. getting brushed off and somebody's being made f to feel you know guilty or like they're an ingrate for mm -hmm. complaining and by the time it actually gets recognized as a real thing it's because a crisis point has happened mm -hmm. a lot of it a lot of the writing of this show for me and a lot of that resolution was me realizing everything in my life got better when I just started owning up to it, you yeah. know? When I started dating people and saying, 
hey, this is a factor and you're going to see it. If you sleep at my house, there's going to be a morning we wake up where you don't recognize me. You're just going to have to be okay with that if we're going to do this. Like hard conversation to have. Chases some people away. All those conversations helped my life way more than they hurt them. So... I really, as this show built and I realized it was turning into a thing, one of my the one of the main things that was always on my mind was like, can I make a thing that I would have wanted when I was 19? Like, I think I can make a thing that I didn't have that I would have appreciated. And maybe there's some other people in that situation now and I can put this in their lap, you know? And even more so than me, what's the show I can make that I wish my parents saw? Okay. That's why the end message of the show not to spoil the whole thing, but it's it's not even about I'm connecting with you and you're not alone. It's about, hey, if you're around somebody, somebody's in your life, step up. Step up. Don't worry about if you're going to mess it up. Step up. And a lot of that, Not my parents are super supportive people. When everything did come out, they snapped into action, full of love. Um, but at the same time, we're like repressed North Jersey Irish Catholics. <laughs> you don't, you keep it behind closed doors, you push through it, you know, yeah. or you drink more likely. Yeah, yeah. You drown it, you yeah, know? Yeah. So all that stuff was on my mind. Like, my life got better. I have hit this resolution that all came through being open and honest. Let me see if I can maybe help some people skip the line and not <laughs> not have to take it to a crisis point before they realize, oh, you are, actually are allowed to do that and it can be very productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like you, you, I mean, you nailed it so well when you said when you were talking about the the Irish Catholic part of it is like, what do you think you're better than me as far as being able to get help for it? Like that's, yeah. I know so many people that it's like that's exactly the response that they would give me if I were to say oh, something yeah. like that I, to I, them. It's I, like I, it's so on the and as Jersey guys, we can recognize yeah. that is where we grew up. Oh, of just 100%. like, what? That's, Come on. that's my brother, you know, in, yeah. in, in a lot of ways. That is my brother. That's every kid on my block growing up, you know, <laughs> just like, what are you, what's so wrong with your life? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Oh, boo hoo. Complaining? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, it's, in, it's insane. It, it, and, you, and you also touch upon this too. Mental health is one of those stigmas where it is interesting how people respond to it. They respond to mental, saying someone you have mental health problems is different than saying, hey, I have an alcohol or drug problem. Yeah. And, and the, res- the response and reaction to it is completely different. You address that head on to it. Yeah. And I've realized a lot of that is because everybody knows somebody in their life, even if it's a friend of a friend or like somebody's uncle who just things fall apart one day and nobody quite knows why. And that could happen to any of us. Nobody quite wants to face that. And uh, I, I remember... When I was at Rutgers, I had a, a friend, one of my best friends to this day. He had no ill intentions, but I remember he was the first person we used to hang out all the time. I remember saying to him once, like, I think, I think something's wrong. He said that to you? I said that to him. Oh, okay. I was like, I think something's really up. I don't know what's going on, but something's wrong and I'm not feeling good and it's getting worse and I can't figure out how to, how to get it going in the other direction. I remember him just straight up going like, ah, uh, I don't know, man. He just wasn't Good equipped luck, to man. have that conversation. People are not equipped, you know? Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people who feel like, well, then you have to think about, why is this happening? Is it going to happen to me? Why does this happen to people? This is a part of the world that can get pretty ugly, and it's pretty inexplicable a lot of the time. People don't want to face that. Yeah. So maybe, even if for a handful of people, I do this thing, and that conversation isn't just brushed off. That would be, I, I'd feel proud of that. And then most of all, obviously, I also just hope it's funny. Like, I just yeah, hope the is. jokes are funny. It is, it is. As someone that just watched it, it is funny. That's good. So there's there's some... definitely, it's I'm. It's it's a little scary for me. You can imagine the insecurity because it's mm. like, this is by far the most mainstream thing I've ever done. Maybe the most mainstream thing I'll ever do. Yeah. And it's like, if I was, if I was more 
about strategizing, <laughs> being crafty. It's like, do you want the biggest thing you maybe ever do to be this sad? <laughs> I'm pretty, I'd like to think I'm a pretty funny guy in most stages, but this is not, certainly not pound for pound funniest thing I'll ever do. But it's I, I definitely, I think the thing that will have the most uh, meaning to me. So I was willing to make that trade. It adds a, it adds a second, le- another level to titling it career suicide. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. If it, I don't know if that was one of the reasons you called it that, but you know, it, it, works. it works. I mostly want it. Like, I'm like, I don't want anybody. If somebody's like, Oh, I heard this guy's funny. Let me turn on his special. <laughs> I want them getting surprised. So let's just put suicide in the title so everybody knows what they're getting into on this one. Yeah, I mean, so just kind of thinking about how this came together, what's the time frame in which you started with this idea to when it actually became a thing? By and large, three years. Okay. I, uh, the story about getting drunk in New Brunswick predated of course. all of it. That was yeah. the one that was like actually working as a stand-up bit, which I think shows in the show. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It kind of goes into a different gear. And I've heard you tell the MDMA story. Yeah, uh, I had a different... South Southwest a couple years back. Yeah, I had a version of that that went on my album. And I, I, I was... It was also on my Comedy Central half hour. Mm-hmm. This is a different telling of it. It's more kind of a point in the timeline on this Yeah, one. you there's start some, off kind of where that ends. Yeah, there's yeah. some crossover, but I tried to not tread the same ground Are we giving too away much. too much, by the way? I don't know. I don't <laughs> care. Who cares? Um, so, yeah, then 2014, open for Biggs. He challenged me to do it. Spent about three months trying some of the stuff out in those Brooklyn rooms. Did a full run of the show at UCB a couple times towards the end of 2014, which to me is like... Having come up at UCB, I'm like, yes, that's what it's for. If you got an unlikely to work one hour show mm-hmm. about suicide and you want to call that comedy, go try it there. Falls on its face. Great. <laughs> that I love it as like a workshop room. I still think it has so much value. That's despite many comedians' issues yeah, with the place. Yeah, there was a couple years back when Kurt Metzger had issue with it. I've, yeah. I was, you came to UCB's defense, rightfully so, because that's a little bit. That's but I, I, yeah. I, I tried to also say I get it. Yeah, I yeah. get the problem. I, I actually agree on many levels that there's problems. Here's how it worked for me. Yes, I'm not. I'm not saying this is how it should work. I'm saying here's how I worked that system yeah. to my advantage. That doesn't happen for everybody. Yeah. I also say, go on record and say, progressively the last few years, I think I'm, you know, it's more and more solidified in my mind. Yeah, there's there's some problems with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, Big okay. time. Mm-hmm. I, nobody's going to deny that. I said it worked for me anyway. Yeah, yeah. Worked it out there, took it to Union Hall, would do it there once a month, twice a month, mm-hmm. depending on the schedule. And then that was all through uh, 2016. And then August of 2016, I took it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and that's when it got... Just exploded. Well, you do 26 nights yeah. in a row. I had a director at that point. We knew it was going to go off-Broadway and HBO, so this director came in, and was, she, her name's Kimberly Senior, and she's kicked my ass. I was like, I think this show's pretty good, man. I got this, and she kicked <laughs> the shit out of it. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse. <laughs> you can totally curse. It's fine. Um, and then we came back, did it three months off-Broadway, two more weeks in London, and then we taped it. So I did the show. I also did it at Just for Last Montreal, San Francisco Sketch Fest, uh, a few other festivals around the, the Canada and the States and probably performed it close to 200 times so before it's, we taped it. So it's super polished. Like, you, this is, this is, yeah. what, this I mean, is I, as good as you're going to get it? I, I think you so. Think? I mean, I was always tinkering with it. Still, even even on the special, there's a couple jokes that I improvised in there. A couple uh, crowd reactions. Yeah, a couple that, crowd yeah. reactions. There's like there's a joke about Morrissey that was like the second time I tried that. I was like, oh. no, the first taping went well. Let me just throw this in the second taping, see if it works. I made the special proud of that. Um, so I was still, like, I'll never... 
all my work. I'm like, work on it, work on it, work on it, work on it, work on it. It's never done. But I also knew as soon as we taped the special, I was like, I'm never doing this show again. Oh, really? There was some talk of maybe let's tour it, get it out on the road between the taping and when it airs on HBO. But I was like, you know what? It's hard. The show was hard to do. I could imagine. Because, I mean, you said you did 200 times about that yeah. time. I mean, even during the taping, there's some points where you can tell it's difficult for you to talk about. There's yeah. a, I don't want to say you break down and cry, but you, oh, get, I, you get emotional. You're being kind. I cried three <laughs> times in the course of my special. Yes. I'm the only comedian who <laughs> cries during his own special. But my mom was there. The oh, second okay. taping, my mom was there. Okay. So every time I mentioned her, you see me kind of look up and to the left because I knew where she was sitting. Oh, Okay. And it's just impossible. Because when my mom first saw the show off Broadway, I, I, was, I was able to say to her, like, I get to do this now and it's hard. And you had to deal with it when it was not a comedy show at all. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine what that was like. And I'm so sorry I put you through that. And she said, you know what? Like, I actually see how you're trying to use it to help people now. And I got to say, it was so hard, but I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change a thing, you know? And that was like a hard emotional conversation, you can imagine. But yeah, yeah, sure. I do actively cry three times <laughs> during the course of my own comedy special, which is very on brand. <laughs> very on brand. I wouldn't say it's like, it's not like huge emotional cries. I'm not bawling. Get, you get choked up. You, you hear it in my voice yeah, and you yeah, see yeah. the eyes get red and for you, sure. And you pause a little bit and, you know, it. it yeah. Yeah. Kind of, it adds some of the emotion to the uh, the special. I think it makes it better. Yeah, I can't wait <laughs> to hear what other comedians have to say about that gonna bust. at the end of a long night. I'm sitting at the bar. Chris, they're going to bust all of your chops because that's what comedians do. <laughs> of course. Do. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and you you do uh, speaking of comedians there's some there's some nice name drops in here. I like the whole the whole name drop <laughs> sequence how you thread that in there. I'm I'm assuming the person you name drop you got approval from I him did, before did. I did it. and he was very kind. I, it's funny though cuz I texted him when I came up with that joke. I was like, man, that's killer. And it's, a friend it of it is killer. Friend of mine who's a mutual friend to both of us. We won't spoil that. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to I think spoil that's cuz I'm very proud of that moment it's comedically. A it's a good one. Uh it's like a three point shot, you it know. It is. And uh, my friend who saw it was mutual friends was like, that's hilarious. You can't ever do that again if he doesn't know about it. <laughs> so I texted him and, and to his credit, he was like, I remember that night so well. It was mm. scary. I feel bad about my role in that, but it's honest. And as long as you're honest, do it. He said, like, just make sure people know that at UCB, people fuck around a lot. Yeah. Make fun of each other, that it wasn't me being mean. I wasn't going out of my way to bully you. It was, yeah, yeah. that's how it worked there. And it was a, the wrong night for it. Mm -hmm. And he was great. And that's so, like, as an artist-to-artist -artist talk, that's, yeah. like, a very beautiful talk to have. But then, three years later, I got to call him again and be like, so, um... <laughs> You know how I told you I was going to do this thing at Union Hall where like 80 people at a time are going to see it? How would you feel about me doing it on HBO, historically one of the largest platforms for stand-up comedy? He had to take a minute to think about that too, but he very kindly let me use the joke. and uh, He seems like a sweet man. He's the sweetest, yeah, which is yeah. part of why I think it's so funny. That it is It is why it's a good twist. You're just like, oh, I didn't expect that, that, yes. that name to be dropped. When your listeners listen to the special, they will realize one of the nicest people in the world led to one of the mo darkest nights of my life <laughs> by far uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of recurring characters in the special too you know there's Barb yeah, you know your shrink, uh, your, your shrink uh, who you speak of <laughs> in a very loving tone that I feel like only someone that has probably told Barb a lot about their life could could speak about yeah, like, yeah. it's both you love Barb and you you kind of make fun of Barb mercilessly at the same time. Yeah, which Barb had a lot to say about. I'm sure she We had did. a couple sessions that were more her talking to me than me talking to her. <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> 
good old Barb. But I, it's great that you found people in your life that you can like. You, you know, some people don't have that. Some people, yeah, it's, it's a best friend. Some people, it's a shrink. Some people, it's a mom, an uncle, an aunt, or whomever yeah. it is. And and it seems like uh, the progression of like, okay, I found that that I that this is a, this is a, an affect that I have. I, affect is that a good way? I don't even know if that's yeah, the right I think way. To you put. nailed it. Okay, cool. This is an affect. That's that our I have. Rutgers education to play. <laughs> I know. We're never sure. Never sure. <laughs> never sure. Always second guess yourself. This is an affect you have. Okay, there's some people here that kind of are helping me, but not really helping me too. Oh, I found uh, I found a group of people that's a good support yeah. system too, which it sounds like is the journey of Chris gathered through this. Yeah, and I, I, that's it's nice of you to say. And and I think one of the central things I wanted to hopefully get across is like my shrink is pretty weird. Yeah. And to be fair, one thing I don't mention in the special is she's weird with me because I'm weird. There's other patients who she has a very standard relationship with. Sure. She's told me that very by the book. With me, she sensed that I was an out-of-the-box guy and that's the way to approach it. But one of the things that I really hope to get across is like, go find the help that works for you. Yeah. Some people say they can diet their way out of depression. That if you eliminate gluten, it can clear up your depression. Great. If that works yeah. and you're happier, I'm all for it. Like. <sighs> I joke how she recommended numerology to me and I brush it off as like, you know, quackery and fortune telling. But if some people are feeling better because they participate in numerology, big thumbs up from the yeah, sky, yeah. you know, like find the help that works for you is one of the central things I hope gets out there for it. So going back to, you know, the, your cast of characters, how have they, have they all responded positively to you basically airing your dirty laundry with them or? Yeah, it's funny. Like uh, Barb, Barb saw the show off Broadway and uh, she didn't come backstage afterwards. Okay. And I knew she was there, and I was I was very scared. Oh, no. And I texted her, hey, like, we didn't catch up after the show. You know, she lives in Mexico now. Mm -hmm. She was only in the States for a handful of days, saw the show. I'm like, oh, I didn't even get to see her. Text her, I'm like, you all right with everything? Are we cool? And about three hours later, she wrote back and said, we're cool now. I've had a couple shots of tequila. <laughs> we'll talk soon, but we're good. We're good. So she was good. My ex-girlfriend, who I mentioned in the show, mm -hmm. she saw it, and... Uh, she is someone who I give a lot of credit to because she, at Rutgers, when things really fell apart, that was a person in my room with me, mm -hmm. sleeping in my bed with me a lot of times when I couldn't function. She watched it happen, and that was hard. We yeah. went to high school together. We, were, we knew each other since we were kids. She saw it. That was very emotional. She one of the sad, You want to hear one of the saddest reactions to the show? Sure. This one threw me for... That's one of the things I didn't anticipate. I started doing this off-Broadway eight times a week. Mm -hmm. You can imagine. That piles up. It def definitely does. Being from North Jersey, this is the, I've been doing comedy 17 years. All of a sudden... Half of West Orange, New Jersey is showing up to see this show. They never, people never coming out. This one word spread, though. And people had these stories where they'd be like, I remember I was there this one night where you flipped out. You got wasted and you flipped out and then you were crying. And they're saying it like, I remember this funny thing, right? Like, yeah, I was yeah. a part of that. And I'm like, oh, I blocked that out for a reason. You know what I mean? So <laughs> she showed up and she said to me afterwards, like one of these conversations with someone from my past, she goes, look, like, I know, I know you tried to stay in touch and I really kind of stiff-armed you that and she was like if i'm being honest i always kind of assumed i was going to get a really sad phone call about you someday oh. and i just like didn't want it to hurt oh that much Ooh. and that's a brutal thing to hear after really you get much, off stage doing a comedy so. yeah. show yeah comedian i like now even <laughs> i put it in air quotes now when i call myself a comedian I'm like an emo you're like an emo humorist but you are a comedian i've seen you on stage telling jokes plenty of times right you taped a half hour with comedy central yeah other comics don't have that so i know but you know i've walked a really weird path but that you know what i've yeah. noticed is like in new york i i, I do have i i i put stand up on such a pedestal mm. it's what i wanted to do since i was a kid Obsessed with Eddie Murphy, obsessed with Andy Kaufman, obviously, yeah, me yeah, being yeah. a weirdo. But it's, you know what I've noticed from other comics is 
I feel really good about the fact of like most comics in New York, even like some of the more cutthroat club comic style, which is not totally yep. my style. I think I have a lot of people's respect with a very, with the caveat of like, you really walked your own path, man, but you hustle hard. There's respect there. So I joke about, you know, my insecurity about am I a real comedian, but I, 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 I am proud of what I've done and the way it's turned out. And I, th- I think people respect you, too. I mean, like, we're sitting in Bobby Kelly's studio right now. He goes and sees a therapist all the time. He talks about it all the time. And, yeah. you know, he, 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 had a, he had his own struggles and his own demons with addiction and all that kind of stuff, too. So I, I think I think it's a, amongst the comedy community, everyone's got that thing. And, you know, yeah. and some unfortunately, with some of them, it's mental illness and some of them, it's alcohol and depression or drugs yeah. or whatever it is. So They I mean, all kind of tie together. They and do. There's, there's like a... The blend of insecurity and narcissism <laughs> is a very pronounced thing in the yeah. stand-up world, and it makes it very hard to connect with other people at times. I think a lot of us, a lot of comics would say, you sit at a table with a bunch of other comics, and then you go home, and it's like, those are my friends, but they're, are they... Yeah, but they just shadow me for the last hour. Shadow me for an hour, and we don't <laughs> yeah. really hang out outside of like it's one thirty in the morning, and we're all done with our sets, and now we're sitting around the table making fun of each other. It's like that's my social scene. Like it's a very odd mix of feelings in our heads. But I, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm definitely uh, trying putting putting that all on the table. But I also am so wary of the you have to be sad to be funny thing. I think that's kind of bullshit. Yeah, the whole sad clown persona. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think, I don't, yeah, and, and and that's one of the reasons I hear like so-and-so didn't get help until so late because they were worried that if they got help, they wouldn't be funny, and that's, yeah. I think that's an unfortunate thing to Me hear. too. It's like people volunteer to be sick and sometimes die because we've convinced them, no, that's what makes you interesting, and yeah. it's like, maybe you can be alive and and uh, sacrifice some of the interesting. But my shrink also, that one of the things, I, she, one of our, right out of the gate, when she wanted to put me back on medications, I was wary, as, as we all are. And she said, she's like, I get it. Some, I'll be honest, some pills can kill your creativity. But guess what? I'm a good doctor. If that happens, that's your job. We'll put you on different pills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if we can't find pills that avoid that, Find some other way. Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna take away your your talent, your <sighs> job, the way you pay your rent. It's not. Yeah, I I, you know. I once heard someone. I want to say it was Marcus Parks. You know, I don't know if you're familiar uh-huh. with Marcus, but he he runs Cave Comedy Radio. And he and he talks about his mental illness as well. And and he on a recent podcast mentioned said, you know, having a mental illness is not your fault, but treating it is your responsibility. Yeah, and I, I think that's so smart. And I heard him say that, and I was like, oh, that that like really just kind of put everything in the focus. Where yeah, you know, sometimes you need to kind of like make sure that you're okay with that stuff. Yeah, and I I have found in people I've talked to, it's like one of the things that's kind of insidious about it is I think it almost, it's like your internal, it it wants to survive in a weird way. Mm. Like my internal monologue gives me tons of reasons to not get help when I'm at my worst. And it's almost as if it's this like organism that's trying to survive by convincing me to not deal with it. And that's, uh, that's like such a scary thing. And that's a voice you kind of have to learn not to listen to, you know? And Mm. I think because of that, I've had so many people tell me like, yeah, I saw a shrink once and I didn't like the guy. So I stopped. Yeah. And it's like the only, it's like the only type of doctor where we view that as okay. Like yeah. if you went to a dentist and you thought the dentist was kind of a prick, you'd find another dentist, you let all your teeth fall out of your head, exactly. find another dentist. Like, why does this work differently where you feel like, well, I tried it once and now I'm done. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's, 
I think it's just there's this male macho stigma that happens yeah. that it, that at some point it's just like I don't know if it's something that's carry over from like our ape days or whatever it is yeah. or your dad your grandpa passed it to your dad who passed it to whatever and you know I I feel like the only coping mechanism that you know men or macho men had for the longest time was alcohol or to drink it away yeah. or whatever it was shot in a beer on the way home from work and there's so many different ways to to address it in 2017 it's funny I've been thinking a lot about that of like like we're not like most of us. There's still some people very hardworking who do this, but like mm. most of us aren't now working on assembly lines or yeah. like we're not members of like the steelworkers union. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more men these days who are like app developers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. maybe we can just admit a little more that we are a little bit softer than we were yeah. 20, 30, 50 years ago mm -hmm. and just be softer. Just like be softer and be okay with that. You yeah. know, like there's a lot of us who <laughs> live soft. <laughs> Yeah, we live a little softer than we did. Yeah. And not everybody. There's still coal miners. Yeah, absolutely. Respect it. A lot of people in my life, though, I think are hanging on to the values of our hardworking parents and grandparents when we have been handed a life that's a little, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of graphic designers that don't there need are. to <laughs> act like coal miners anymore, you know? But isn't that also like a good thing? Because that was, I remember it just being the goal of your grandparents or your parents was to provide a better life for your children than they had. Yeah, like, I think so. The fact that your mom, that you don't have to work two jobs, but your mom and dad did. Yeah. Like, there's something to be said about they the gave that to they, us. They did. And they gave should, that to us. And you should respect that too. And they gave that to us so things could be easier. Yeah. And this is one of a handful of issues where we don't allow that evolution to happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, but I think specials like yours and conversations like this, the more they happen, the more people listen to them. It kind of, I think it also gives people the 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 tools to fight or to build whatever it is needs to be built to, to, to combat it. I mean, sometimes I think me, to me, one of the biggest problems in the world, whether it be politics, mental health, whatever it is, access to information and facts seems to be one of the biggest problems. It's like, you know, you yeah. don't have access to, okay, this is a concern. How do I address this concern? I don't know. So I'm going to either avoid it or I'm just going to continue to address it the way I always have and just kind of like keep it at arm's length. Yeah. It sounds like that's not the proper way to do it at all. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not trained to speak to the proper no. way, but it doesn't sound healthy to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will say on that note, you know, working with HBO has been really eye-opening, incredible. And as you say that, like, they, I didn't even, it wasn't even my idea. They set up a page, hbo.com slash get help. Oh, okay. Just so there's some responsibility that if anybody sees this and they want to get active, that that's, that's an option. And they put that out there. And I applaud them so much because that's not going to get them ratings. No. It's not going to get them viral clicks. No. That's just the right thing to do. Of course. And uh, there's a handful of things like that. Like they, they told me recently they're going to actively try to get this shown as part of like college orientations in the future, which means so much to me because that's the age that I could have used it. Yeah. And to have an opportunity at this company where, you know, this is a big shot for me. It's a big platform. There's so many things to worry about. And then to take a step back and realize, oh, no, there's also like a lot of people at this company that just want to do things that are kind for the sake of doing them. Mm -hmm. I give them so much credit, so much credit for that. That's great. Yeah. It sounds like it's a great relationship and, you know, there's potential more for more, hopefully. Who knows? I mean, it you could be out... the next Robert Klein for HBO. Hey, look, though, it, <laughs> it comes out Saturday and by Monday that dream could be done. Who knows? I hope these reviews are good, but who knows? Well, you know? I, well if I mean, for like the way of the world, like I said, I watch it. And I think it's fantastic. Thank and, you. And, and it's it's also one of those specials like I was watching it and I was probably about 45 minutes in and I was like, how long have I been watching this for? And I realized it was an hour and a half, not just an hour special. Yeah. And it. 
it flew by because there's that's because cool. it, because that's it's a engaging. major fear as you can imagine <laughs> i'm sure it is you know because it's like you know there's those two and a half hour movies where you're like it's every bit of two and a half hours yeah. and then there's those ones that fly right by because they're engaging they're active whatever it is and i feel like yours is there was the latter where it was like it was engaging that's it was nice interesting. that's super and reassuring to and hear I, and again i don't know if it very well could have been because i was like oh he's talking about things that i yeah i mean you're really the target like, audience like, and like, instantly really it's like, funny judd <laughs> apatow executive produced the show and he worked that from both ways he it's it's so you know as a guy i've had to scrap pretty hard mm -hmm. with my with my tv show and and everything everything yeah, i've yeah. done like i i gut it out and i make it happen it's all grassroots and that's nice you get a guy, guy like judd apatow and you just see oh i have this champion now and he can actually make yeah, this happen he can move and, a few things with like a, a yeah a, a move of a hand almost and he really stepped in i wasn't even part of the conversation he stepped in he was the one who said to hbo this let's let's let this one be as long as it wants to be got that 90 minutes which not everybody gets I'm, I'm insanely grateful for that and then on my end i said mm -hmm. dude this feels is it too long just like in principle mm -hmm. these things are not this long and he yeah. said you know what this is a one-man show it's not a stand-up special we can't be beholden to the standards of that and a lot of people these days they don't watch anything start to finish yeah you watch 10 minutes before bed you watch 10 more minutes the next night and then you finish it over the weekend when you're done with work yeah yeah. like there's people who can't the attention span these days there's people who don't finish a youtube video in one shot i know so let's let it be what it wants to be we make the thing they get to choose how to consume it. They get to choose how to react to it. And I was very Zen Yoda like. I was gonna say like the, the Judd Apatow, wow. you know, calming you know presence seems yeah. like it was very very good there. I just when we we premiered the special at the Tribeca Film Festival, which was horrifically intimidating, but very very cool night in my life. But we did a panel afterwards, and Judd was there. Pete Holmes was there, and Judd's EPing yeah, crashing. crashing on yes. HBO. And Pete was talking about, like, here's some situations where Judd Mr. Miyagi'd me. <laughs> and I had the same experience of, like, this is comedy Miyagi. <laughs> this guy knows how to say things in a way that... He's like, Yoda, I get it. <laughs> yeah, but it just slices through. Yeah. And it's simple. It's easy to understand. You recognize that there's truth in what he's saying. And especially doing comedy that aims to also have, like, heart or other emotions layered into it. Who do you want notes from more than yeah. Judd Apatow? Like, couldn't couldn't ask for a better mentor. On How this. did you get linked up with Judd? Because if I recall, and this might be just totally some idea I thought of, I remember you trying to get him to acknowledge your book Oh, social media. Here's what happened. Okay. He, I think you're mixing, you're merging that with my efforts to okay. get Diddy to appear on I remember. Show. I remember Diddy yeah. Get Hard. I remember that. Yes. Yes. So... <laughs> I did Pete's podcast at South by Southwest one year. Okay. It was a live performance of it. Myself mm -hmm. and Kumail Nanjani were slated to be the guests and Todd Barry. And I was totally comfortable with that. <laughs> Pete calls me like 40 minutes beforehand. Hey, Judd Apatow's going to do it. Oh. <laughs> Have you ever met him? No, I've never met him. I haven't met him either. Oh. Okay. Is he this goes, where he Judd signed deals with both you and Pete? Well, listen to this. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. He goes, I'm gonna get him also, there. you're following Judd. You're coming on after <laughs> Judd because he might have to split. I'm like, great, great. Thanks, man. Thanks. Thanks. I'm already the least known person on this thing. <laughs> he brings me out. Talks about how I taught him in improv classes. I've um, heard a lot of people say that when I've done improv interviews. They're like, Chris Gethard was my teacher. I was pretty good at teaching improv. Okay. In a way that I think, that's why I defend improv when the stand-ups <laughs> start going on it. Because I'm like, I get it. I get yeah, yeah. 
I've been to many improv shows and seen a bunch of white dudes in loafers and khakis. I get it. But I also think they're anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was good. I, at, so I was good at that. I was pretty. Yes, it, it was all legendary good praise in that, that world. It yeah. was all good praise. Yeah. So Pete, I'm like out loud. I'm like Pete, please stop making me talk about being an improv teacher in front of Judd Apatow. Like, please. I had to verbally say that because Pete's, you know, such a motor mouth and never slows down. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd put out a book at the time called "A Bad Idea I'm About to Do." And Pete straight up is like, Judd, do you ever develop things off books? Like, would you ever read Gethard's book and maybe develop things? And Judd's like, do you have any like movie ideas out of the book? And I'm like, I haven't thought, you're going to ask me on stage. And then Kumail jumps in and goes, uh, producing a thing of Gethard's would be a bad idea Judd is almost definitely not going to do. And then Kumail leans behind Judd, looks me in the eye, and he's like, I had to do it, buddy. It was sitting right there. I'm like, a joke's a joke, man. A good joke is a good joke. I'm not... I'm not mad at you. It became this really funny thing. And then Judd did take a copy of my book, read okay. it, and tweeted a picture of him reading okay, it at me. Okay, and I made that, that my profile okay. picture for a while. Okay. Um, so that was that whole story. Okay. But then it's it's kind of mind-blowing to think back to that because he's producing my special, Pete's show, and Kumail's movie. And none of us had met him before that day. It's a, huh. It's got to – I'm surprised there hasn't been like some dorky think piece about how that was like the most productive individual episode of a podcast ever. That's, that's so funny. So, so basically the odd man out's Todd. Barry is what you're saying? Hey, I didn't want to bring it up. I didn't want to bring it up. Who knows? Maybe they're working on something back channel. Haven't asked about it. So basically, I know Todd. I've hung, I run into Todd from time to time. I'm not bringing it up. Uh, John, if you're listening, Todd, if you're listening, uh, yeah, we can make that introduction again if we need to. <laughs> That's incredible. So, uh, you we we touched upon did it get hard? Like you 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 kind of always had these fun little I don't want to say stunts, but like you've definitely done a lot of things like yeah, that over the years, kind of like, like performance art stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, been interesting good to me. Like I feel like the whole public access show stuff yeah. is a performance art type, definitely. Of and it's always like try let's try to stage some event, and it might be a disaster, but hopefully it'll be a fun, watchable disaster. And Mm-hmm. really let people kind of see me take it on the chin when it is, let them be a part of that, let them call into the show, interact, use the internet, phone lines, mm-hmm. all these things to interact, be, leave their fingerprints on my stuff. And I think that was like the greatest thing that came out of me be, having a UCB background was I started there in 2000. Mm-hmm. That was way before it was a success factory. That yeah. was way before uh, you could get on stage within a few months, you know, like um, – it was different. It was it was a lot different, and and a lot of it was just such chaos, dude. Like I can't tell you how fun it was to be a twenty year old depressed kid and show up and be like, "Oh, everyone here is an experimental comedy obsessive, mm-hmm. trying crazy stuff." I saw so much weird stuff on that stage. Did so much weird stuff in the basement of that old theater, <laughs> and it was just chaos. And it was just this idea of like, do whatever you want. If it's funny and it's honest, it'll fly here. You know what I mean? Like. And that was such value for me. It was an old strip club, their old theater. Yeah. Giuliani shut down a strip club, so they got to take over the lease. I showed up <laughs> a few months after they opened the theater. I'm like, this is crazy. I'm watching shows where like Rob Riggle is like walking out from backstage with a baby doll and pretending to have sex with it. <laughs> and it's just a confused audience of 15 people going like, what's he going for? Like doing coke off a baby doll. I never forgot that. <laughs> Like stuff like that, where you're like, this is insane. <laughs> and that was what I always hung on to. And I think when I was teaching classes, that's why a lot of people responded to me. Because I think my perspective was always, I'm not here to teach you rules. Mm-hmm. I'm here to teach you how to break the rules. I'm going to assume by the time you got up to my class that you know the rules. Yeah. And now what we got to do is throw the rules out the window. Um, 
and actually say something with it. Yeah. And I always pined for those days of let's just do some crazy stuff and see who finds it. And the people, even if it's a disaster that chases away 80% of the audience who go, why did I just watch that? The 20% who are like, wow, that was a disaster. I'm coming back next time. <laughs> Build up, find enough of those people over the years because those are my people. Yeah. You know, the people who kind of want to, it always was this like punk rock thing of like, you know, why do things have to be a certain way? Mm -hmm. Like that's the central question of punk rock, I think. Why do I have, you know? Why yeah. do I have to have a picket fence and two cars in the driveway? I don't want that. What yeah. if I want something else? What else is there? Mm -hmm. Why does why do I have to keep the fourth wall up? Why mm -hmm. does my comedy just have to be, you know, this or that? Why can't I do all sorts of stuff? Why mm -hmm. I'm you know, I had so much fun staging so many crazy shows <laughs> and got a reputation for them. And uh, yeah, just I've always just wanted to whether it's whether it's doing like I did a show once where like comedians, if they weren't funny enough, they got shot by a paintball gun <laughs> on stage. Like whether it's something absurd like that or it's something like like the special where it's just like I'm crying on it. And it's making you think about some stuff that you probably don't want to think about while also laughing. Mm -hmm. I think one of my goals has always been like try to be funny and then try to layer something else on top of it. Mm -hmm. Just like funny plus something else. Funny plus sad, funny plus violent, funny plus strange, funny plus confusing. Like whatever it is, I always have this instinct of like funny is the starting point. Now what else can you throw on top of it mm -hmm. to make it something nobody else has ever seen before, you know? So It seems like it's always an emotional response, too. I mean, because that's, I mean, you know, I, I have this conversation quite a lot with my with my wife. It's like when we're, when we're talking about something, she'll have the re emotional response to it, whereas I'll have, like, the, the rational response that to pragmatic, it. Yeah, yeah. just pragmatic. Yeah, that's just the, the nature of who she is and who I am. And, and I feel like the people that have their emotional response, it's, it's so much more intense, whether that be a good or a bad thing but at least you're having a response whereas my rational response i'm usually kind of like middle of the road yeah and but that's the last thing you want to be but the last thing you want to be is middle of the road sometimes where it's because like if you're trying to build something you want people to either love you or hate you that was not to always, be like whatever that was you. always something i lived and died by and yeah. when i was teaching those classes again i think one of the things that makes some of those people bring my name up is i always <laughs> would say what we're aiming for is like something legendary we're aiming to put on the funniest thing every time I get on stage I'm aiming to be the funniest thing anybody's ever seen mm. am I gonna get that <laughs> probably never <laughs> and if it happens at all it's not gonna happen so often but if I don't land like killing it yeah I want disaster <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be in the middle it's fine it was okay I don't want that yeah that's safe and you know a lot of people I think can build careers floating from Thing to thing, you know, yeah. floating from acting project to acting project where you're you're doing that, writing an act that you do for so many years because you know it works. That's great. That's great. Mm. That's great. I never begrudge anybody paying their rent, getting their insurance. Do it. For me, it's just I want to succeed at a legendary level or I want to <laughs> go down in flames and let people just watch me burn. <laughs> Always been my instinct, you know? As the Smiths behind the background. <laughs> Big time, yeah, to the faint sounds of Morrissey crooning as the ship, as you can just, I want people, like, I want my comedy sometimes to just be like, people can stand on the shore and just watch a ship, like, burst into flames and then sink, like, to me, but that's also, I always loved disasters, yeah, yeah, yeah. and growing up in Jersey, like, did you ever see Uncle Floyd, do you remember this guy, he was more of a North Jersey guy, he had a homemade TV show, and he's like a vaudevillian. He still does a lot of comedy in Jersey. Plays piano, uh -huh. tells jokes. No, I, I can't say I do. Is that this crazy I'm a South homemade Jersey guy? Yeah, this crazy homemade TV show. 
He'd have like puppets on. He'd be doing puppet bits. They never edited anything out. Like if he misspoke, you'd hear the cameraman be like, "Get it together, Floyd!" And like <laughs> that's part of it. But then they'd have like Dee Dee Ramon come on and play music with one of his post Ramones band. You'd be like, "I think this might be the best thing in the world." I can't tell. You know, even like I think. To me, the ultimate piece of comedy that I've seen in my lifetime is Conan takes Mr. T apple picking. <laughs> because if that's already, you just know from the premise that's yeah, going to yeah, be funny. Yeah. You're just like, what? I can't wait. You know Conan, you know Mr. T, you know how Conan's going to bounce off Mr. T. But if you watch that piece of comedy, Mr. T actually behaves in such bizarre fashion <laughs> that you watch it actually even fall apart from that premise. You watch Conan just start to get confused and go like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? And it just becomes a disaster more and more. And it's like this great piece of comedy with this fantastic premise that also falls apart to me is everything I want in my entertainment. <laughs> Have you ever seen the clip where the, it's either the Today Show or Good Morning America is doing some Halloween bit and these two Ewoks, they got these two little people yeah, dressed as Ewoks. Yeah, yeah, and they're like hammered. They're hammered they're and they hammered. start humping Al Roker's leg. <laughs> yes. If I could make all my comedy that, that's what I'm aiming for. <laughs> and that is, there is a part of me that, like Andy Kaufman was my guy. Yeah. I've watched almost everything he's ever done. And you know, as much as you can get your hands on. And I always loved that. He might make an audience really straight up angry yeah 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 want to kill him want to punch him want to get yeah, on stage and absolutely. punch him or grossed out you know when he he wants to one of my favorite bits is when he went on stage i think at the improv in la me i don't know where it was i shouldn't quote that but in la some club where he had a boil on his neck and he's like hey so i got this thing i'm going to a dermatologist tomorrow to get it removed but before that if anybody wants to pay me a dollar you can touch it and it's just <laughs> people would go on stage one by one give him a dollar they put him on last. He was there all night. People touching a boil, poking his boil. He'd like make them wash their hands first. They poke his boil. So that's always, I'm always thinking, how can I shake it up a little bit? Can I make, there's a part of me that is very unapologetic. I'm going to tell all my jokes and try to make them funny. And I'm going to cry. And I'm going to see if I can make you cry. That's <laughs> kind of fun. It's kind of interesting. Might fall apart. Might be a lot of backlash, but, but it also it, might be yeah. the best thing I ever do. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great way to live life. It's uh, it's you know, you never really know, and it it, it also makes life a lot more interesting too. So I think the thing. <laughs> Plus, I am a person whose emotions are often out of control, so I'm constantly tracing adrenaline and trying to put myself in dangerous situations because of all the self hate issues. So there's also that side. Yeah, there's it. there there is that side to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely, very much so. So uh, I'll leave you. I'll, we we have to wrap this up. On Unfortunately, I could sit here and talk all day about yeah, this. Sorry, I ramble so nah, much. No, it's too, totally by the fine. Way. It's totally, totally I'm fine. Uh, learn how to be succinct, <laughs> succinct on these press things. <laughs> it's totally fine. This is a podcast. This I need is some quotables. <laughs> I need some quick what are quotables. The, what are the pool quotes we can do here? Yeah. Is music is, is it sounds like it's a huge part of your life. Yeah. I mean, just between you know punk rock upbringing, Morrissey talking about the Smiths being a thread through it. Like you know, like what uh. Have you ever had aspirations of incorporating music into you know your comedy? Do you play an instrument or anything like I that? I played cello when I was a kid for 10 years, and then I walked away from it. Um, it was just too heavy? Too much yeah, too big. <laughs> too I was the littlest kid in class, and I had an instrument like a foot <laughs> taller than me. I actually am the singer in a Smiths cover band, <laughs> which kind of happened by accident. Let me guess. You guys are called... You'll never guess. It's the best name. It's a deep cut reference. Oh, uh, so I was thinking like Hang the DJ or something like no. that. That's going to be the name of your... Mr. Uh, Shankly and the Frankies. Oh, look at you. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty proud of that. Pretty there, proud of that. You're probably, you know, I think uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of other artists that I think are big Smiths fans. The other band that pops in my head all the time is Brand New. They're from the area. 
area. They're, from uh-huh. they're huge Smiths fans. Mm-hmm. Actually, they have songs that sound like they ripped off the Smiths. But yeah, we won't, in, we won't get into that. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, so it's it's just interesting because like I've seen your public access show where you've had the front bottoms on, so yeah. like you definitely have like that kind of not mainstream but more alternative type of vibe to you. Yeah. So like uh, you know anything besides a Smiths cover band that you're. Uh, no, you know, it's it's <laughs> funny. Like, I when I was 12 or 13 years old, my brother brought me to the first cover concert I ever went to, and it was a punk show in a church basement. Okay. Which is, like, a formative thing. I'd never seen live music before, and then it's with, like, 20 other kids watching bands where the kids in the bands are, like, four or five years older than us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can imagine what, like, what an eye-opening thing that was, to go buy a record, to buy a 7-inch from this band and realize this kid's, like, 18, 19, mm-hmm. I'm 13, and to realize, oh, nobody allowed them to do this. They just went and did it. You can just go do things in life. Mm-hmm. Um, that was huge on me. I don't think I have much musical talent, <laughs> but I think, I think experiencing the music scene in that way was massively eye-opening for me to just realize, like, oh, just go make the thing. Like, if you think a yeah. thing should exist, make it exist. And I think that's why it's certainly why my public access show came into play. I'd been on a sitcom. Yeah, I'm, Big Lake. I'm the I'm I have to be the only person in history who went from being the star of a sitcom to hosting a public access show in, within a year. Have to be. It's, was it that clo- was it that close to each other? Yeah, it oh, was wow. less than a year after the sitcom failed. Okay, got canceled. I was hosting a public access TV show. I think the only reason I was able to be okay with that mentally is because I came up as a punk rock kid and mm-hmm. saw other people just making stuff for the sake of making it believing in it and then every once in a while you see one of these bands actually slip through the bouncing souls there's plenty of new brunswick bands new brunswick pop. where we yeah, yeah, lived for yeah. four years yeah 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 lifetime thursday yeah you got gaslight anthem they you see all... these bands come yeah. from where we come from and they actually screaming females do yeah. it and they actually make it happen you see and you're like oh they came from the same place i did mm-hmm made it happen so yeah, yeah. i know those guys i saw those guys the other yeah day, you they know, would walk like, down hamilton street <laughs> exactly and it's like i don't think music i never had asper i knew i wasn't talented musically but i th- I, I thank god that that's how i came up because comedically it gave me so much you know mm-hmm. and then also being from new jersey seeing those bands <laughs> i think you'd agree if you're going to be artsy in new jersey you go all in yeah because totally. people don't have time for it. Yeah, people don't have time for your aspirations. You know, <laughs> you go make it. Go work as hard as our dads all work. Mm-hmm. And if you can make it work, great, buddy. Yeah. But nobody's particularly looking to coddle artists <laughs> in North Jersey. There's no, not. No, I'm sure not South Jersey's the same way. No, not at all. You go make it happen. Yeah, yeah. You want to be a musician? Go write songs good enough that people care. Mm-hmm. You want to be a comedian? Go do something funny and interesting enough that people have to pay attention. So that punk scene, especially that Jersey punk scene, if I didn't, if my brother never took me to that church basement, I'm probably, you know, very happy and working a desk job where I get a 401k and a pension and all those things that give you that safety net in life. But I I just never wanted that. Mm -hmm. It's because of the music. Yeah, I wish I was talented. If I was talented enough to play, I'd be in a band. I would. I wouldn't be a comedian. I think a lot of comedians say that. Though. Well, I mean, there's that whole adage, rock stars want to be comedians, comedians want to be rock yeah, stars. Yeah, I have so, found that to be very true. Well, I, I, yeah, and they also keep the same hours. It's true. We get each other's lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the lifestyle overlaps quite a bit. So. Yeah, big yeah. time. So uh, on that note, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. This was great. What a pleasant 
conversation. Thank you for having. Well, me. Gr- I'm glad you had a pleasant conversation because yeah. sometimes uh, they, they no, they're always pleasant actually. Yeah, but all, it is like <laughs> well, like I said, I related a lot to the special just yeah. for just for various reasons, and I'm a huge comedy fan, and obviously I run a comedy website. You can't be a huge comedy fan not yeah. run a comedy website. So. Got a lot in common, but it's nice to not. <laughs> Just talk about the same nine things. Oh, everybody, you know, it's, it's <laughs> oh, nice. It's super oh, nice and cool. much appreciated. Cool, yeah. cool, cool. I did. I, I, yeah. I, I wrote down a couple notes. The other, the only note that I had that I don't think we talked about was Marvel guy. <laughs> that was uh, one of my notes. <laughs> yeah, come on. I, I, I okay. no contest. <laughs> real, real quick anecdote. I remember you seeing you shoot a video for Marvel where you basically wrote a, You wrote. Yeah. You wrote the publishers, and yeah. then you basically went back to, years later to Marvel's website and yeah. read the note you wrote to the publishers. Yeah. Yeah, when I was in eighth grade, I wrote a letter to Marvel Comics saying how I cried when the multiple man died. It's a very low-level X-Men associated character, not even in the X-Men, in one of the, like, the spinoffs. And then they published it like six months later. Problem being, by the time they published it, I was in high school. My brother was a senior. And man, did he give it to me. Oh, everybody sure. everybody oh, got a gift-wrapped copy of that. I have a friend to this day who the first words he ever said to me were, you're the kid who cried when the multiple man died. That was the first way I met a lifelong friend. So. <laughs> Marvel. Is the best. <laughs> there you go. So, so Chris, I'd like to thank you for coming on the podcast. So, your uh, one man show, it's called Chris Gather Career Suicide. It premieres on HBO this Saturday, May 6, 10 p.m. Yeah. Eastern. So, it'll be awesome. Is there anywhere else, anywhere else online people can find you? Your website, yeah, Twitter? Uh, ChrisGeth.com, and then, you know, ChrisGeth on Instagram, and then ChrisGeth on Twitter, and all those things. And also, if you missed the uh, show on, on Saturday, remember HBO Go and Now and all mm-hmm. those things. And uh, Probably the way most people will actually consume yeah. at this day and age. So. And I just sincerely hope you find it funny and if it helps on top of that that's great and uh thank you for letting me promote it and 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 thanks to anyone who checks it out thanks for coming on the show it's my pleasure all right and that'll do it with our interview with Chris Gethard. I want to thank Chris for being on the Laugh Bun Podcast. We learned a lot of really cool things. Great conversation. Uh, probably the one thing I was most excited about this conversation uh, afterward was he said that he was he was glad that we talked about things that he doesn't usually talk about in an interview. Well played. Thanks, buddy. Did you learn anything, Bram? <laughs> no. <laughs> we ask this question every week. So, yeah. So, so tune in to HBO this weekend, uh, May 6th. Check out Career Suicide. It premieres at 10 o'clock. If you don't catch it on HBO Live, you can catch it on HBO Go, HBO Now, any of the apps and streaming services. It's completely available. It's definitely worth watching. It's definitely worth having a conversation about mental health. And it's fucking funny. That's the important thing about it, too. It's fucking funny. It's about his life, and it's uh, hilarious and ha- lets you have a conversation. So, Chris Gethard, good dude. Thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, that's going to wrap it for this episode of the Left Button Podcast. You can go to the uh, theleftbutton.com, read all the news we have going on, subscribe, tell a friend. I feel like this podcast is growing. Last month, we set a uh, single-month download record for the podcast which I was really, really excited about because we had some great guests on last month, including you gentlemen. Yes, so pretty good you. co-host as well. <laughs> Did all right. It was all because of you guys. Partially. I, I, yeah, totally because of you. No, it was all me. <laughs> you can totally take the credit for that yeah. too. So, uh, yeah, so we're this thing is only growing and it's doing because people are telling each other about the uh, podcast and uh, they're subscribing, downloading, and write some reviews and some fun stuff. Uh, it's if you like wanna... spreading and it's viral and you don't need an ointment. <laughs> you don't need to apply any topical creams. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to, if you want want to tell a friend or read a review or if you want to email us drop a line podcast at the left you can also check out our merch store i should actually really do a nice push for our merch go to 
com slash merch. Uh, you can also click on the uh, the store button right off uh, the main page of the laugh button and check out some some uh, merch stuff. The store you can buy t shirts, hoodies. Uh, you can now buy stuff like stickers. You can buy like covers and all that kind of stuff. And uh, underwear? Not underwear yet, buddy. Unfortunately, mm. but you can get like a coffee who, mug. Who wouldn't want to rock a laugh button thong? <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Who doesn't want to rock a laugh button thong? So check out our merch and then drop <laughs> us a line. Daisy Dukes. Exactly. Subscribe to us. Basically, get us wherever you uh, get podcasts. We're on the Laughly app. We're on Apple. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. Uh, I mean, we're on uh, TuneIn. We're on all those guys. So but if you're listening, you might already know that. Yes. You. <laughs> This is very true. You can, uh, son of a bitch, why do you have to be make sense, Brian? I just like poking holes in theories. You can find me personally at I am Klein Schmidt. You can find uh, anything with the laugh button where you can type in the laugh button into a browser, social, or anything like that. You can find Bram at metalinsider.net and. And uh, Bramphetamine on Instagram and Bramfilter on Twitter and at Arlene's Grocery on Friday with my band Black Whale. Yeah, and Nick, where can people find you? Twitter, Buttery Spaceman, Instagram, Ham underscore, underscore, underscore. Cravings, underscore. Uh, my band is called Tarby. Uh, you could follow me or if that would be great. If not, go fuck yourself, Buttery I guess. Buttery Spaceman and Ham there Cravings. It's unbelievable. Okay, that'll do it for this episode of the Laugh Button Podcast. We'll catch you later. Bye-bye.